So occasionally a child will enter our house holding a bloody knee or bloody elbow, and I can always expect, Daddy, can I have a Band-Aid? And sure, and so we make it to the bathroom, and I pull out the Band-Aids and the ointment and the dreaded hydrogen peroxide. No, not the stinging bubbles. But then I explain, I cannot bind you up until I clean the cut. Sometimes the best care will sting before it binds. The same is true when we visit a good physician. Sometimes problems in our bodies require the doctor to cut into us. He must first wound us before binding us. And when he does wound, a good doctor will not lie about what he finds there. He will expose what's there and determine how much further to cut before binding us up again. Well, last week we studied God's word piercing us like a sword. God's word penetrates to the the depth of our innermost self. God's word exposes the inner secrets of our heart. And that word stings. That word wounds. But next to verses 14 to 16, this is but one part in our great physician's work to heal us and make us whole. After wounding us with the sword, God binds us up with with his uh, with with the the work of Jesus our great high priest now within the letter uh, verses 14 to 16 are doing two things you know we've we've encountered Jesus's pre- priestly work before uh, but only briefly so for example in chapter 1 verse 3 it says that he made purification for our sins uh, or or later in chapter 2 verse 17 he he's the uh, the, the, the merciful high priest who removed God's wrath from us. Uh, and then in chapter 3, verse 1, we're, we're called to consider Jesus' faithfulness as high priest of our confession. So verses 14 to 16 are kind of pulling back to these places where it's been coming up here and there, but it's only been addressed briefly. At the same time, we're about to enter a lengthy discourse on Jesus' superior priesthood. And this is going to last from chapters 5 all the way through 10. And it's going to explain why Jesus' priesthood is greater than that of Aaron. Why Jesus' priesthood involves better promises. Why Jesus' priesthood begins a better covenant and so on. And so verses 14 to 16 are not only reaching back... Uh, They're also reaching forward to to introduce this lengthy discourse on Jesus' priesthood. It's almost like he's been saying, I've been trying to get to this all along. Just here and there, but now we're going to cover it in depth. You might have uh, picked, picked them out for yourself, but in verses 14 to 16, we encounter two complimentary exhortations. He says to hold fast. And draw near. Those are the only two imperatives in, in these verses. Hold fast. Draw near. And those two complement one another. So hold fast has to do with endurance, resolve, moral fortitude in, in the face of hardship. 
But it's not as though there's no help when, when we're doing so. Right? Quite the opposite. Jesus opened the way to the throne of grace, and so he says also, draw near. Draw near to find help in time of need. And then everything else in the passage is explaining why. It's, it's giving the motivation for why we hold fast and why we, we draw near. So let's take each exhortation uh, more carefully. And let's discover why Christ's priesthood is so compelling. Right? The first exhortation is hold fast. Hold fast. Uh, we see it there at the end of verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. Now remember, some, of the Jews, uh, some Jews had become Christians uh, at some point, but now their time has gone by. They've en- endured some hardships, and, and, and now they're wavering in their commitment to Jesus. And part of that is due to their own passivity, and part of that is due to persecution. And both may even be related. I've said this before, but you can imagine a Jewish Christian at that time thinking, why keep suffering? Right? Wouldn't our old ways in Judaism be better? The Jews would leave us alone. Besides, didn't God speak in the Old Covenant as well? Why bother with Jesus if it means so much sacrifice? And Hebrews says, no, don't go there. Let us hold fast our confession. Well, confession of what? Verse 14 gives us a clue. Jesus, the Son of God. That's who we confess. Chapter 3, verse 1 mentioned him being the high priest of our confession. So we confess the role he took on to save us. And we also confess what he accomplished in that role. So chapter 10, verse 23, speaks of, uh, to the confession of our hope. Okay, so, so we put these together. God's Son became our high priest to secure for us a hope. The hope of all satisfying rest in God's presence. That's our confession. It's the gospel in, in a nutshell. We confess Jesus as God. He became our high priest. We have a true hope based on his finished work. The context for that confession, though, is mission in a hostile uh, world, a world that's hostile to Jesus. The world, the flesh, the devil, they all threaten our confession. So holding fast means great endurance. If it was easy, he wouldn't have to say, hold fast. You know, from elsewhere in the letter, we know that, that false teaching threatens their confession. The fleeting pleasures of sin were alluring others. Weariness in the fight of faith was tempting others to give up. Persecution was a looming threat every day. And, and with that persecution, it wasn't uncommon to lose material possessions. So some of them endured the plundering of their property. Satan, as well, had his own schemes to manipulate others with the fear of death. So various obstacles were testing them. Various obstacles were were tempting them and putting pressure on them to give up. And various obstacles tempt us as well. False teaching. Pressures from a culture that's hostile to Jesus. Pressures from within us to compromise. Sinful pleasures that allure us, wearisome 
weariness in long seasons of, of, of affliction. Weakening bodies, loved ones dying. It's facing these obstacles that we must hold fast to our confession. But why? Why keep holding fast? What about Jesus should strengthen our our hold on, on him? Well, verse 14 says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And notice how it says, Since or because we have a great, great high priest, let us hold fast. The reason to hold fast is that Jesus isn't just a high priest like all the others. He's a great high priest. He's superior. And so first off... It says he's the Son of God. Now, Son of God has uh, that kind of language, has different connotations throughout Scripture. But we don't have to guess what he means here. Chapter 1 already laid it out. God has spoken through a particular Son, and this Son is the heir of all things. He, He created the world, He is the radiance of God's glory, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He has a name that's greater than angels. Unlike the previous kings, Jesus actually and fully manifests God's rule on earth. He's worthy of worship. He's the eternal God. This is what it means for Jesus to be son of God. He's in a category all by himself. There's no one else like him, in other words. Well, that son became a high priest. Okay, remember uh, what, what, what it said in, in chapter 2, verse 17, that he had, to make, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. God's son had to be chosen from among men to represent men. That son had to become one with us so that he could represent us before God. That, that's what the high priest did, right? He, 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 uh, in the Old Testament, the high priest wore that you know, really fancy breast piece. And what was on the breast piece? It was the names of the sons of Israel, right? And he wore that breast piece into the holy place to bring them before God. And then once a year, he would enter the, into the most holy place, right? Behind the curtain to atone for the people's sins. And this was telling them a story that God is holy and he cannot overlook sin. Sin separates us from God. And at the same time, God chooses to love sinners and bring them into his presence. But the only way they can enter his presence is by the death of another in their place. And hence the high priest would then they'd come and offer the, the blood of bulls and goats. And these were but copies of the greater things to come. They were all a pointer. The blood of bulls and goats never really took away sins. But Jesus' sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, his blood removes sins once and for all. And so Jesus is the greater high priest, right? He offers the ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews will, will develop this further as we move along, but... But as the greater high priest, Jesus opens the way to God's presence. That's why verse 14 also says he passed through the heavens. Right? Jesus didn't, didn't stay dead. He rose to pass through the heavens. Now, heavens could mean the regions above the earth. Like, you know, that's how it appears in chapter 1, verse 10. Right? You laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the works of your hands. So the idea would be that he passed through these heavens... 
into the heaven of heavens, into God's presence itself, just like the apostles witnessed at Jesus' incarnation. I mean, incarnation, ascension. But in addition to, to, to that, Hebrews 9 to 10 will speak of Jesus entering the true heavenly temple in contrast to the earthly copies. Right? As, as the greater high priest, he entered through the, the greater and more perfect tent. It says, one not made with hands, one that's not of this world. So he passed through those heavenly places to enter beyond the curtain into the very presence of God, meaning he opened the way for us. And this makes him a great high priest. Okay? So if he's greater than the other priests who came before, and if, and if he's accomplished something for us that, that's infinitely greater than what any other religious figure could ever accomplish, then we're supposed to let that truth strengthen our grip on our confession of Jesus. There's no other Savior. There's, there's nobody else who passed through the heavens like Jesus did. There's, there's nobody else who opened the way to God. So he's saying, when hardships come, don't let go of him. When these Jews come in, tempting you to revert back to the old covenant, you point them to Jesus and you hold fast to him because he's better than all the priests that came before. So when the pressure comes, you keep confessing Christ. When Satan tempts us to despair, you look upward, right? And you see him there. He made an end of all your sin. Now this isn't easy to do. We need help. Sufferings, persecutions, temptations, various afflictions in life, difficult circumstances, wearying relationships, dark seasons of the soul. If we're going to hold fast, we need help. And that's where verses 15 to 16 enter the picture when he says to draw near. Draw near. You know, after, after reading... That he passed through the heavens, uh, one could easily begin to think, well, if he passed through the heavens, then he's distant from me. If he passed through the heavens, he can't understand me. You know, he expects me to hold fast, but does he really know what I'm going through down here? And verse 15 gives a resounding yes, he does know. Uh, More than anyone, he knows what you're experiencing. And not simply because he's all-knowing. He actually identified with our humanity and experienced temptation himself. Only without sin. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, before explaining what this does mean, it's helpful to explain what it doesn't mean. You know, some have used this verse to suggest that when the Son became a man, he took on a fallen human nature. Not just a human nature, but a fallen nature. Human nature. He had to be tempted in every respect as we are, and so they argue in order for that to happen, Jesus had to take to himself a fallen human nature. Now, 
in all charity, they will also argue that Jesus committed no sins in that fallen nature. They, they only mean to stress that in order for his experience to be genuinely like ours, he too had to share in Adam's fallenness. And you can find this implied on, on Christian blogs that, that suggest Jesus had wayward desires. Or also John Clark published a theology book in 2015 where he too entertains this idea. But that view is dangerous to our confession. For starters, fallenness is not intrinsic to being human. Was Adam less than human before the fall? Of course not, but, but we sometimes forget that. I mean, sin becomes so common to being human, right? But sometimes we forget that. It, it's, no, it's, it's abnormal. Also, to, to have a fallen human nature with Adam is also to share in Adam's guilt, according to Romans 5. Christ, however, has no guilt. Moreover, to say that, that the Son took on a fallen human nature immediately compromises his person. You see, in the incarnation, his human nature is inseparably one with his divine nature. Holiness cannot unite with wickedness. And so be careful not to to read too much into this here. Jesus simply took to himself a human nature. And that nature was like ours in that it was human, body and soul. In every respect, he was a man. He also entered our fallen world. So he entered the world after Adam sinned. And so as a man, he experienced the effects of our fallen world. He put himself in such a state of humiliation that he even experienced human weakness. This one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, 2 Corinthians says he was crucified in weakness. But Jesus had no actual sin. He did nothing wrong and everything right. And Jesus had no inherent sin. So he was free from sin in the entire structure of his being. It's like the angel told Mary in Luke 135, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called holy. So the virgin conception makes Christ unique from all others born in Adam. Also, Hebrews 7 describes Jesus as holy, innocent, and unstained. Meaning Jesus experienced an onslaught of temptations, but none of them ever came from within himself. Right? None of them grew from his own personal depravity. So what then does verse 15 mean? How exactly was Jesus tempted as we are? Well, think of it this way. He was tempted the same way Adam was in the garden prior to the fall. Adam didn't have a fallen nature when he was first tempted. God tested Adam, and Adam failed the test. Adam buckled, but not Christ. Like Adam, Christ entered the world with a human nature, but not a fallen one. And then he too was tested and tried and tempted. But unlike Adam's world, the world Christ entered was fallen. So he had it even worse. Adam had everything he could dream of. 
And Christ enters this world as the new Adam, as the new humanity, and he experiences this fallen world. Being truly human, he experienced hunger. He experienced fatigue and weariness. He felt the enemy try to thwart his mission. He felt the devil's lies, the questions doubting his sonship, right? If you really are the Son of God, he experienced pain in the Garden of Gethsemane. He felt the dark night of the soul when God seemed absent. He prayed with loud cries and and tears. Chapter 5, verse 7 says, He knows what it's like not to want to suffer, but still chooses it in obedience to his Father. He was born in a stable and grew up with no place to lay his head. He experienced abandonment from friends, the abuse of enemies. His own family members misunderstood him. He felt the misery of death when his friend Lazarus died. He was shamed, hated, mocked, and beaten. People lied behind his back. Even the closest friends tried to get him away from the cross. They slept when he needed them most. But unlike the first Adam, Christ never gave in. It was way harder to remain faithful on this side of the fall, and yet Christ still never gave in. From from birth to the cross, Christ remained constant and faithful under the pressure. He only ever did the Father's will. Every time he faced temptation, he succeeded, even under the excruciating pressure of drinking the cup of God's wrath. Now, don't think... I think we're tempted to think this. Don't think, oh, sure, easy for him, he was God. Yes, he was God in the flesh, but he did not lean on his divine nature to succeed in those really hard moments. No, he succeeded as a man. It is crucial to remember that. He succeeded as a man, wholly dependent on his Father, wholly dependent on the Spirit's power. Now, some people think that that when you argue this way, that that Jesus didn't have a a fallen human nature, it, it seems to take away from some of the pressure he felt. I mean, after all, don't we have the added pressure of a fallen human nature? Doesn't that make our experience harder? Actually, no, it doesn't. It's just the opposite. Who experiences the full force of temptation? Who feels the the significant weight of temptation? The one who's tempted and resists, tempted and resists, tempted and then gives in? Or is it the one who's tempted and resists, tempted and resists, tempted and resists, tempted and resists, and never gives in? Listen to the way uh, Donald McLeod puts it. He says, We must be careful not to misconstrue the effect of Jesus' sinless integrity. Far from meaning a shorter, painless struggle with temptation, it involved him in protracted resistance. 
Precisely because he did not yield easily and was not, like us, an easy prey, the devil had to deploy all his wiles and use all his resources. The very fact that he was invincible meant that he endured the full force of temptation's ferocity until hell itself slunk away, defeated and exhausted. Against us, a little temptation suffices. Against him... Satan found himself forced to push himself to his limits. Whatever your experience with temptation and trial, no matter how, how great it may seem in your eyes, the onslaught of mounting temptations that Christ endured are incomparably worse. And he willingly held fast under that pressure for your sake. He willingly held fast to become your high priest. Which means he's perfectly suited to sympathize with your weaknesses. Not only was he human. Not only was he crucified in weakness. But he identified with us in this temptation. He felt what we feel and so much more. And all to become our help. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 34 illustrates that this word to sympathize means there are some, uh, in chapter 10, there are some Christians who have been imprisoned and he's writing to the ones who aren't in prison And uh, he says this of them. He says, you had compassion on those in prison. Or it's the same word that we're finding in our passage. You You could translate it. You had sympathy for those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. And the point is that the Christians not in prison had such a compassion for those in prison... It moved them to act on their behalf. And so also here, as our high priest, Jesus sees our weaknesses. He sees the state we're in. He knows what temptation feels like himself. He knows the full force of the trials and the darkness and Satan's attacks. And Christ has such compassion for us that it moves him to act on our behalf. Not only did he never give in. Not only did he become that unblemished sacrifice, not only did he open the way into God's presence, even now he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Even now his compassion for us moves him to act. Even now he's alive, doing this, sympathizing with us and and moving to act on our behalf. Which is why he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It's not a throne of wrath for those who belong to Christ. Isn't that good? That's good news. It's not a throne of wrath. For those who have Jesus as their high priest. I don't want you to miss the language. I skipped over it. Don't miss the language in verse 14. We have a great high priest. 
And then uh, again in verse 15, he's saying, we do not have, but we do have this, this idea of, of have, we have. In other words, the passage is not saying Jesus is a great high priest, even though that's true. He's saying we have. What makes all the difference between those two is that you are actually personally relating to him as your high priest. He's not just a high priest out there. He's yours. You belong to him and he belongs to you. And when that's true, we have access to the very presence of God himself, the throne of grace. I couldn't help but think of the Old Testament imagery here. Often in the Old Testament, uh, the people would speak of Yahweh as enthroned above the cherub. Enthroned above the cherub. And if you picture it, whether it's in the tabernacle or in the temple, what were the cherub? The cherub would spread their wings over the mercy seat. And so you get this picture in the Old Testament itself. Yahweh's throne is to be approached through the mercy he provides and the sacrifice, right? The angels are, the cherubs can't even see they, they hide their face from the, the glory of the one who's enthroned above them. And at the same time, their wings, they cover the, the, the mercy seat. So you get this beautiful picture of what it was like to come before the Lord who graciously makes provision for your sin. That's what he's like. That's what the Lord is like. That's who he is. In Jesus, he made the ultimate provision for our sin. And so we come to this throne of grace where he has provided atonement. As chapter 1 verse 3 says, he made purification for sins on the cross. He removed God's wrath from us on the cross. And then he passed through the heavens to open the way for us into God's presence. And even now we can draw near and we can do it. Notice it says with confidence. We can approach the throne of God without fear of being smite down. We can approach the the throne of God with absolute confidence that he accepts us, that he will hear us. And then he will respond with grace. That's that's the purpose we come to the throne. It says that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This goes hand in hand with the sympathy part, right? Remember, not only is he able to identify with our struggle since he too was a man, his compassion for us moves him to act. It moves him to give mercy and grace in time of need. Not only does he know what we experience, he's able to strengthen us to overcome just as he overcame. He delights to give us mercy and grace in time of need. He forgives us when we do wrong. He gives grace to do what's right. Right? Our relationship to Jesus isn't merely a matter of reporting to him our wrongs. Well, I did this again, and I did this again, and I did this again. And we get forgiveness. And I did this again. It's not just that. It's this active, ongoing, he gives me grace to do right. 
It's not just just a relationship of, hey, I did this wrong, you forgive me. It's also give me grace so I can do right. And and notice it's it's timely grace, he calls it, it, or or a grace in time of need. It's, It's grace that's suitable for everything that we encounter. John Owen has a, a great commentary on, on Hebrews. Uh, but, but this phrase, in time of need, he, he writes this, there, There's many a season in the course of our profession and walk before the, the Lord, wherein we do or shall stand in need of special aid and assistance. And then he teases out some of these various seasons of life in which the saints throughout Scripture have needed special assistance and, and made their cries to God, and you see God providing uh, for them. Uh, but he mentions times of affliction. So think of the people trapped in slavery, crying out for God to help, or when Paul was so utterly burdened that he, he despaired of life itself, uh, or when the people were con- uh, concerned with the other believers in the other town that they had to leave, and they had to leave him behind sick. Even this morning, the, the Tom family, they've, they've, been, they've been visiting us for a few weeks now. Sherry's brother fell and, and injured his head. And, and, and the doctors had to do surgery to stop the bleeding this, this morning. Affliction. This is a time of affliction. Also times of, of persecution. Uh, we find that in Hebrews 10. And we also see the saints in Acts 4, right? They experience persecution, but they all, they gather the church and they draw near to the throne of grace. And they cry out for help. Temptation is also a season in which we need special grace. The, the, the world entices us all the time. Satan roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Sometimes even the good things in life become controlling things. So that we're tempted to sin in order to get them. And in this season, too, we need special assistance. He also mentions season in in which we're called to perform a a specific duty. Whether it's, you know, Moses leading the people of Israel or or, uh, Joshua entering the promised land, the disciples to follow Jesus, you and me to make disciples of all nations. Some of you, it's to parenting. Others of you, it may be a task at work. Some of you are studying for a degree or preparing for the mission field. You've been called to perform a specific duty. And we need the Lord's special assistance as the children are crying. We need the Lord's special assistance, right? Right? We're for you, parents. Also, Owen adds times of changes. Times of changes. And the difficulties associated with those changes, changes cause fear and uncertainty. Changes sometimes mean running into new problems, enduring new stresses. Changes sometimes mean appliances don't work when moving to the new house. Or people don't respond to the change that you wish, and they, you, wish they would, they, you wish they would have responded in a certain way, but they don't. He also mentions feelings of of spiritual desertion. Meaning those times when it feels like God is absent. Job, Job made this cry. 
He says, Lord, I cry to you for help. And you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. This is his prayer to God. Or Asaph cries cries this way in Psalm 77. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Sisters, there are some of you I feel like have been praying that for a long time now. You know this season of spiritual desertion well. And I'm sorry it's lasting so long. And then lastly, Owen mentions death as another season in which we need spiritual assistance. Whether that death is our own, one day we will have to face it. Or whether that death means the loss of someone we loved dearly. You know, someone we now miss every morning that we wake up. And every evening we lie down. A pawpaw we wanted our kids to know. All these different kinds of, of seasons bring with them various pressures and temptations. And they require further strength and fortitude to keep holding fast. And this text is saying, God is saying, that your great high priest has opened a way to the throne of grace in the midst of those seasons. So draw near with confidence, beloved. He will give you mercy. If you've sinned, don't run away from the throne. It's a gracious throne. Run to the throne of grace and he will forgive you. If you're hurting, struggling, exhausted, or know someone who is, draw near to the Lord in prayer. Cry out to him with confidence, knowing that you are accepted in Christ. And he will give you grace to help in your time of need. He sympathizes with you in your weakness. He knows how to strengthen you for everything you will face. The world does not have this kind of access to God. But you do. No other priest or religious figure on earth can give you what you truly need. But Jesus can. And Jesus will. His sacrifice was so complete that it opened the way to God. How do we know? He passed through the heavens. He sat down at God's right hand. Through Jesus' blood, now you can draw near. So draw near to him. What more could we ask for than to find ourselves in the very presence of God immediately, every day, in the midst of everything we encounter? He is available to us. And he gives grace to fit our time of need. Let me take this supper on that note. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.